a reading from Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his, uh, his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, you um, present us with these incredibly challenging words, and we want to hear from you this morning. We want to hear and learn about ourselves, and more importantly about you, how we connect to you. And we ask and we beg that your spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is soft um, to be persuaded, to be challenged, to be comforted. And we ask that this would happen for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. I want to begin with a question. Uh, What stories do you like to tell about yourself? When you meet someone, what do you lead with? Do you tell a story about how you like to work out? You know? Do you tell a story about what you do? If you're a parent, about your kids? Maybe you lead with a story of success or your creativity, your hobby, your values. Maybe how just chill you are. You know, how complex you are, how different you are. All of these things are about how we want to be seen. You know, a few years back, there was an article in the New York Times uh, entitled, The Stories We Tell Ourselves. And the title caught my eye, The Stories We Tell Ourselves. And it was written by a philosopher, a guy named Todd May. And he observed this. He says, we're often telling stories about ourselves, mainly to make ourselves look good. And I quote, we tell stories that make us seem adventurous or funny or strong. We tell stories that make our lives seem interesting. And we tell stories not only to others, but also to ourselves. And he goes on to say that most of us live in echo chambers that reflect the righteousness of our lives back to us. You know, an echo chamber that helps us to see we're good, we're right, we're superior. And in this parable we just read, Jesus describes two men who go to the temple to pray, and they tell very different stories about themselves. And here's the background to it. In verse 9, it says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice, it doesn't identify who the audience is. Oftentimes, Jesus is speaking to the disciples or the Pharisees or the crowd or all three. But here, it's not kind of identified or specified. 
And we may easily assume they're Pharisees, but I don't think that's the case because I think we're meant to see all of everyone kind of in this story. And it may have been uh, focused to one group, but I think it's easier and more helpful when we understand it to leave it as general as the scriptures have here. It doesn't say. But what it does say is these are people who trusted in themselves and their own righteousness. They trusted in their way of how they understood the world, the way they behaved, they, the way they saw themselves as righteous and treated others with contempt. Amazing how not much has changed in 2,000 years, right? We do this all the time, don't we? We look out and we see people and we're like, all right, I'm better than them. Here are the people that I don't want to be with. We disagree with them, so they're out. You know, this word righteous uh, that is used here in verse 9 in the scriptures has to do with being approved in the scriptures. Being right in the sense of being justified, accepted. Someone who's kind of passing scrutiny. Someone who's like, all right, you have passed and you're counted as good. And I remember experiencing this very personally when I was studying to be a pastor. You know, you go to seminary for years, you finally start going through the process of applying for a job and wanting to see if a church wants to hire you to be their pastor. And once you get beyond that piece, you actually have to be examined to be ordained. So there are written exams. A bunch of paperwork has to be sent in. You send in, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. You sit for hours and take these exams on, you know, back in the day, people would write it out. And then after all of that, you go before a committee for hours and they ask you all sorts of questions on theology and Bible or what feels like the whole day. And once that's done, you get to go to what is called the floor exam, another exam where a larger group begins to test you and ask you a whole bunch of questions about theology, Bible, whatever else. And I remember completing and passing the exams and feeling, you know what that feeling is? Relief. (laughs) You know, these people recognize my sense of call to ministry. Uh, They're saying I have a level of competency to be a pastor, to be ordained as a minister of word and sacrament, which is uh, the specific title. That feeling of being accepted or approved is, I think, something universal that we are all searching for, whether it's in our friendships or at school, in our romantic relationships, at work. And, we're, and, you know, we are all after this sense of approval, acceptance, vindication, or the word in our past passage is the sense of being right or righteousness. And Jesus, I think, is asking... What is the source of your righteousness in this passage? Is it something you achieve or is it something that is given to you as a gift from God? That is the central question because the result and the fruit in your life are utterly different depending on the source of your righteousness. You see, righteousness you achieve will lead you down, uh, lead you to look down on others because it always ends up being comparative, you know? So much of verse 9 is in our culture today. You know, both on the right and on the left, we're trusting in our own righteousness. Progressives and conservatives in our culture, the non-religious and the religious, we are so convinced of our own righteousness, we treat others who do not agree with us or share our values or have not lived up to our standards 
with what? How do we treat them? Often with suspicion and or worse, contempt. And the parable addresses this longing to be accepted or to be justified past scrutiny. And Jesus identifies two ways we go about dealing with this. Okay? So that's why in verse 10 he says, Well, two men went up into the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee, another a tax collector. And in these two men, we see two approaches. The first one is represented by the Pharisee, and we're going to call this righteousness as achievement. Okay? The other is represented by the tax collector, and I want us to call this a righteousness through mercy. Those are the two things I want us to examine this morning. Let's look at the achievement approach. The Pharisee, he goes to the temple to pray, and in verse 11, listen to what he says. Standing up himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. His approach is what? He's not even praying to God. He's just talking about himself. Did you notice this? He's, he's in the temple, and after he says, God, I thank you, he's not thanking God about God or anything God's done. He's talking about himself, you know? And it's, look at the marks of his strategy. It's all on the outside, completely external. His understanding of what is good, what is sin, what is virtue is all on the outside because it's focused on his behavior, keeping of rules. It's not about the inside. So he says, what? I don't rob, I don't commit adultery, excuse me. I am generous with my money. I give tithes to the poor. I fast, which means he prays. He's not interested in God, but he's talking about himself. And notice the things he's focused on. Again, all external. He's not talking about or thanking God for, God, I'm growing in compassion. I'm growing in patience. I'm growing in my ability not to envy. I'm growing in my ability to love people that I find difficult. I have peace and joy, God, when things are hard because you're a part of my life. This Pharisee is focused all on his achievement. And his understanding of sin is all down to, did I break the law or keep the law? And this is the story he tells about himself. His story is, I am righteous. And this begins to play out physically as well because he starts to stand away from everyone else who is praying. He moves away from the crowd physically, right? He's physically expressing what he is saying. He's separating himself out because you know what? Sin is over here. That means there's a way you can avoid sin. All you got to do is avoid the people who are sinning. So I'm going to stay away from all of those who don't share my values. I'm going to stay away from certain places. I'm not going to read certain books, articles. Stay away from all of these things and people who are not like me. So if you have an external view of how sin works, you're going to have kind of a separatist view of life. You're going to self-isolate. And then verse 9 and verse 11 tell us about his attitude, which is smug and sort of insufferable. I mean, he treats others with contempt. And again, he begins with, God, thank you, I am not like other men. And all of this, you know, you're like, I don't want to be friends with this guy. Yeah, that, that's what we're all thinking. Difficult person. Um, I'm better than other people. 
And you know what's hard about this is you read this and you got to actually believe that what he actually says, he's actually done. I mean, if you think, all right, I'm going to believe he hasn't extorted anyone. He has been a just person. He's been a good husband. He's, he's been generous. He's been a man of prayer. And again, he even says, I have fasted twice a week. And you know what's interesting about that? All the commentators point this out. There is nowhere in the Old Testament that says you are to fast twice a week. Actually, in the Old Testament, you were supposed to fast during the season of Yom Kippur, which, by the way, was this past week in the Jewish calendar. And yet, he talks about it as if this is something everyone was supposed to do, but he himself does it, and he's taken this up another notch. You know why he's doing this? He's taking something that is good, a personal practice of his piety, good thing but not required, and now making it a mark of his own righteousness. He says, I fast, you don't. And that makes me more righteous than you. And he elevates the thing to an absolute standard so he begins to feel superior to others. See what's going on here? This is his story. You know, and oftentimes we do this with lots of different things, but oftentimes in our spirituality. I'll give you an example. You know, um, this is how often it can be used in spirituality. About 20 years ago, I was counseling a couple who was considering marriage. They were both Christians. Both were very successful professionally. They had so much in common. You know, they were on, on the trajectory of being the proverbial power couple, okay? And they had one significant conflict. They argued about how to practice their Christian life. The guy grew up in a church that was intellectual, theologically deep, took the Bible seriously. You know, he's the guy at church on Sunday mornings. He likes to take notes during the sermon, you know. He likes quiet, reflective prayers. He loves singing hymns. But his girlfriend, she grew up in a charismatic church. Expressive, very emotive, loud, spontaneous. It's a very different expression of worship and practice. And here is the issue. He looked down on how she worshipped. He's like very emotionally driven. You know, it's not deep. She's not growing in understanding. And she goes to his church and thinks, these people don't have any zeal and love for God. I mean, where's their heart? You know, they're just sitting there like this when they sing. They're not moving. Nothing is happening. I'm not talking about our church. But... She's thinking very superficial, stuffy. But here's the point. It had nothing to do with right or wrong, but they began to moralize it. And after a while, it was no longer a disagreement, but it actually led to contempt. They were looking down on the other. Disrespect was growing. You know why? Because they couldn't see eye to eye or respect the fact that God could work in their lives in different ways. And they had to take one of their preferences or the way they grew up or their spirituality and made it morally superior than the other one. Needless to say, their relationship didn't make it. And it was over this issue. It was like mind-blowing for me as a pastor at the time. Well, you're both Christians, but you can't agree on this thing. Very interesting. But 
This is what the Pharisee is doing with the fasting. He used this good thing and turned it into a way to feel better about himself and look down on others. Think about it. In what ways do we do this? We do this so often. We take things in our culture, our political view, our preference, and we moralize, we spiritualize, make them as non-negotiables by, we, by the way we pass judgment. We use these as performative ethics. We signal to other people, this is our righteousness. You know, salvation is achieved through hard work. This is what we're doing here when we go down this path of performance-centric, achievement-related righteousness. And Jesus' point is, if you're so good at saving yourself, why do you need the mercy of God? You have no need for me, my righteousness. Maybe you've done it on your own. (laughs) But in the prayer of the Pharisee, Jesus exposes what is really going on in all of us. Remember, this Pharisee is not a hypocrite. He's a pretty good man. He's really a good husband. But here's the problem. At the heart of his religion and his faith is what? The worship of God? No, it's self-worship. Under the veneer of God-centeredness is utter self-centeredness. The acts of morality underneath it all is adoration of himself and a rejection of God. This man who appears to do all the things that is right is utterly lost. And the tax collector is the one who went home justified. And Jesus is saying this is the heart of the gospel, right? Men and women, we are all trying to be our own masters. We're trying to figure out how to live life apart from God. And one of the ways you do it is by keeping all of the rules and saying, God, now I can keep you far away. You owe me, but I don't need your mercy. I'm not at a place where I need to come before you and say, I have nothing else. And what I need more than anything else is your mercy. And you say to God, I'm very good. You need to listen to my prayers. You need to give me because I've done everything you've asked of me. And this is the approach of the Pharisee. Now, let's look at the tax collector for a second. Righteousness through mercy. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And look carefully at his prayer. I want you to see, first of all, his heartfelt sense of his own brokenness. I mean, he is beating his chest. He is crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There is an utter different understanding of repentance before God. He isn't comparing his righteousness to others. But what matters is he knows one thing. Literally, he says, I am the sinner. He isn't asking, am I a worse sinner than anyone else in this room? He simply says, I'm lost. I can't make myself righteous. I see my failure as I stand before you here in this temple. And this is the story he tells about himself. The story he tells to God about himself. And there is something true and freeing about this. A recognition that no matter how hard I work, I cannot change the fact that I am a sinner. 
And this allows him to find a whole new way of finding approval from God, which is God be merciful to me as a sinner. I'm a sinner who needs to take refuge in you. I can't fix myself. And when he says God be merciful, it is more than general mercy he's after here. But the scholars that I've been reading tell us this word for mercy is literally the word atonement. So imagine this man screaming out and praying, let there be atonement for me. This man is not just saying, God, just overlook my sins. Don't count this against me. He understood that isn't enough to deal with his sin. Something more needed to happen. Atonement for him. Remember, he's in the temple. And once a year... During Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people and the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and put the blood of the lamb on the Ark of the Covenant, by the way, which contained the Ten Commandments, right? To do what? To say we need atonement. We need to be made right. Someone needs to pay. And this is what the tax collector is asking for. This is the story he tells about himself. I'm a sinner. Let there be atonement made for me. And as the parable concludes, Jesus says, I'm the one who declares who is justified and righteous. It doesn't depend on your achievement or even how the tax collector is feeling about himself. Did you notice that? It's not like he felt better and then he went home. All we know is he left. I have no idea how he felt because Jesus doesn't tell us. But he says this, the man went home assured he was justified. Look look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How is Jesus so sure about this? How can he declare that this is the case in this parable? How does he get to be the one to say, let me pronounce judgment over this story and over these two approaches? A few verses later in the chapter in verse 31, this is the story Jesus tells about himself. Because the Pharisee tells a story about himself, the tax collector tells a story about himself, And here's the story Jesus tells about himself in verse 31. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. He's saying, you guys, like, I actually have a story to tell that actually intersects with all of our stories, all of our desire for glory, all of our desire for righteousness, and to be called just, to be justified. You know, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says this about Jesus, that he had to be made like his brother in, brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful high priest in the service of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. You know how Christians are to deal with our need for justification, for righteousness? You begin to understand something. 
you begin to see your story, your life, all of it encompassed in this great story that Jesus has been telling about who he is, why he's come, and his love for you and me. And when you begin to understand he came to make atonement for us, that he suffered, not for the sake of suffering, but in order to pay the price for our sin, so that we would understand what it's like to be forgiven, to find refuge under the glory of God. He's saying, here is one thing that cannot be taken away from you. Here's one thing you cannot earn on your own. Here's the thing I give you out of my grace and my mercy. His utter approval because he has done something remarkable for you. He has justified you. And once you begin to understand this is not something you've done for yourself or you've earned, you know what begins to happen? All the people who disagree with you, don't understand you, don't see eye to eye with you on all of these things, all the things you felt around contempt or pride, those begin to go away. Because you begin to understand, I've been given something glorious. I don't have to earn it. The pressure is off. I also can grow in humility and love because I've experienced the incredible power and love of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying here, which path are you going to take? Which path? Are you going down the path where your story is always about you and what you've done before God, before others? Or is it always a story about, I've received atonement, the love and the mercy of God? Because when you see yourself in Jesus' story, it begins to change everything. You begin to fill out spiritually in a way that says, I'm growing. I'm growing in compassion, mercy, love, mission. And Jesus is saying, come, come into my story and see how you fit and experience my love. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, this morning we come because we are broken people. We're so broken, we don't even know the solution that is offered before us. In our own pride, we'd rather make our own path, achieve our own salvation, than to say, I'm a person who needs mercy. I'm no better than anyone else here. And God, I need you to do something radical in my heart. But this morning we ask, Lord, that whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, we would hear the story of Jesus and his invitation to say, I want to give you righteousness. I want you to experience what it's like to go home justified. Father, would you allow us to experience that, whether it's for the first time or renew it in us because it feels like it's been so long since we tasted and seen how good that really is. But would you do that for our sake and for the sake of your kingdom? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.